all these different kinds of introductions, never had anyone been introduced as the Lamb of God. Never again will anybody be introduced as the Lamb of God. That title is Jesus' title. So let's meet the man who prepared the way for this great introduction. Turn in your Bible, Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So we have to first say, what are those days in those days? So at this point in the Word of God, we have last heard about Jesus when he was 12. And this is when his parents took him to Jerusalem with all the relatives to celebrate the Passover. They're all there. And then they head home. And they're all in a big caravan. And all of a sudden, Mary and Joseph realize, we don't have Jesus. We don't know where he is. They turn around, go all the way back, and they search for Jesus for three days. Can you imagine not knowing where your 12-year-old son is for three days? They finally find him in the temple. And when you read that passage, Mary sort of scolds him a little. And I thought, wow, I can scold Jesus. <laughs> Scolds Jesus. He's down probably sitting on the floor in the temple. And he looks up at his mom and says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be here in my father's house? That's who Jesus was. Any other 12-year-old would have got in big trouble for that excuse. But it was true for him. And so that story ends with these final words in the Word of God. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So in those days, John the Baptist came on the scene. 12-year-old Jesus was now a 30-year-old man living in Nazareth with his family. But now his public ministry was about to begin, but not before John could do some preparations, some true and good introductions. John was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It was a barren desert, a rugged land. It was west of the Dead Sea. John was Israel's last prophet, and he was commissioned by God to prepare Israel's hearts for the Messiah. He was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. So let's read verse 2 and 3. John said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So when Isaiah first wrote those words, they were comforting words for the Jews who were exiled in Babylon. And it, it was a promise that God would be with them, return them to their land, and then he would reign over them. So John here is living out this prophecy in the New Testament. He's entreating Israel, return to God and be ready for the coming reign of God. So what would that coming reign look like? It would look like Jesus. It would look like Jesus. It would be manifest in the person and the work of the Son of God, the Messiah. It would mean miracles, teachings, promises made, compassion, forgiveness, healings, unlike anything any of these people he was around had ever experienced in their life. 
Look at verse 4 in Matthew 3. Here's some more description. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So like the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, John was this rough outdoorsman, but he had a forthright message. He wore the same kind of clothes that Elijah probably wore. He wandered in the same barren places that Elijah did. But John also had the spirit of Elijah calling on Israel to repent and return to God. And Jesus even spoke about John as Elijah. Look on your verse sheet, Matthew 11. Jesus said, what then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. So John is living simply like Elijah, but prophesying boldly, boldly calling on Israel, confess your sins, turn away from them, meaning to repent. And all these people were. Crowds of people from Jerusalem, from Judea, from all the area that surrounded the Jordan River. We can envision crowds and crowds of people putting on their sandals, stepping out of their door, and starting the long journey into the arms of, God, of uh, John because they were coming for baptism. So these droves of people that felt guilty about their sin were sort of like the waves on the Jordan River surrounding John, wanting to be cleansed. So a better name for John the Baptist is John the Baptizer. That is what he did. And the Jews were demonstrating their repentance through a baptism of cleansing. When they were baptized, it signified that they were admitting they were a sinner, they were admitting their sins, and they were renewing their commitment to follow and obey God. That's why they were doing that. Okay, here's the interesting thing. This kind of baptism was something very new for the Jews. In the Old Testament, they didn't do this. If anyone was baptized, it was a Gentile that wanted to become Jewish. Those were the people that were baptized. It wasn't a thing the Jews did because they thought, we've got the Jewish heritage through Abraham, and they were proud, and they felt secure in their relationship with God. But we recognize that there were a lot of Jews that recognized this wasn't enough. I have to be obeying God. I need to confess my sins. Being Jewish isn't the only thing necessary to know God. And so they knew their sins were keeping them from God's favor, something the religious leaders did not understand and wouldn't admit. Look at verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So these self-righteous Jews, they were not coming for cleansing. They were coming for criticism. And as Jews, they believed they were automatically qualified for the coming Messiah's kingdom. They were God's children. John tells them, don't count on it. He could make children just from the very stones and rocks at your feet if he wanted to do that. And he tells them, the judgment of God was ready like an axe to cut down the unrepentant and unproductive trees. And by that, he meant the legalistic system of Judaism and all the people who put their faith in that. The Messiah was not going to be who these Jews thought he would be. And so on the shore of the Jordan River, John explains next who he will be. Look at verse 11. He tells the people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So first here we realize John does not want his followers to become starstruck with him. He doesn't want the light. He doesn't want this incredible reputation. That's not true. He wants them to focus on Jesus. So he says, he's so much greater than me. John could only baptize with water with the purpose of turning people away from their sins. Only Jesus could baptize to take people's sins away. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, he says, and fire. And what he meant by that is Jesus would baptize believers with his spirit and unbelievers with his judgment. He says that God's judgment is like that winnowing fork. I don't know if you've ever seen a big fork in some hay that's getting thrown the chaff blows away and the good wheat falls down. And it's saying Jesus will gather his own like the wheat and empower them with his spirit. But the chaff, that's those people who reject who Jesus really is. They will face judgment and be removed. And so I thought at this point in the story, we can look into our own hearts and ask ourselves, is there something I believe that I'm doing that makes me right with God. Like the Jews did, who took pride in their own self-righteousness. Am I depending on my service to God, my church attendance, my good deeds? Am I comparing myself to someone else? Am I thinking about my denomination, my tithing? I remember when I was about 12, I thought my confirmation is what was going to make me a Christian. And so I thought, I'm not going to miss one week. I'll be good, and I'll go 12 weeks to my confirmation classes, and then I'll read this book. I have to tell you, the book they gave me, I don't think I would understand today. I I don't know who they thought was going to be able to read this book, um, but I tried. 
And I can remember when I went to my confirmation day and I looked out in the church and they were all my relatives that didn't go to church and I got a new dress and I stood in a line and then the pastor came along and said some prayer over each of us and I looked out and thought, nothing has changed. I am still (laughs) the exact same person. And I walked away very confused and disappointed because guess what I didn't know? I didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought my confirmation would do it for me. John would look at the world's feeble spiritual attempts and speak these words to them. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Renounce your dependence on your personal righteousness and rely on the mercies of Jesus. We have to believe what John says right here. Deep in our hearts, there is someone who is greater than me and greater than my deeds, someone whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. Look at Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. So little did John know that the Messiah himself would come to be baptized by him. It was going to mark uh, Jesus' introduction and ministry to the world, and that ministry is continuing to this very day, even in this very room, even in your very life. And this is where it all began. You know, my little grandson, Miles, is three. He went to the doctor the other day, and the doctor said, you know, can I listen to your heart? And Miles said, okay but don't hurt Jesus in there. (laughs) I wonder what the doctor said. Because he's still at work. He's at work in children's lives. He's at work in our lives. From the day he began his ministry, he never stopped entering hearts. That's what he does. So Jesus walked for many days from Galilee to reach John at the Jordan River, If you have a map there, I think they passed those out at one time, you can take a look where Galilee is and where the baptism of of Jesus took place at the very bottom of the Jordan River. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee with the Dead Sea. Guess how long that is? Even in itself, that river is about 200 miles long, and Jesus was at the top of it to get to his baptism. As Jesus walked, the steps he took toward his baptism were obedient steps, and they would one day lead him to the cross, but these were steps he willingly took. Look at John 10. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And I was thinking about 
all those many days that Jesus walked to get to John, day after day, what he was thinking about. He had a lot of days to think about what he was heading to with this baptism. His baptism, in some sense, meant the beginning of the end for Jesus, life as he'd known it, his family, his job, his friends. He was heading uh, towards heartaches and rejection and a whole different life. The fact that he never stopped walking tells us how obedient he was and that he knew and believed there would be victory to eventually come. Let's look at Matthew 3.13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, and John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So after years of silence in Nazareth, Jesus is now standing in the wilderness in front of John, presenting himself for baptism. And some people think at this point, John knew exactly who Jesus was. He was the promised Messiah. Others aren't so positive that he knew that yet because of what John says in the book of John, which we're going to look at in a minute. But if John wasn't positive Jesus was the Messiah, when Jesus approached him, why would he try to prevent Jesus from being baptized? We can't know for sure. I think he probably had been wondering, maybe this is going to be the Messiah. Maybe it is Jesus. Maybe in his heart when he was around Jesus, who may have been there a few days earlier, he felt inside his heart the holiness of Jesus. Because remember, John was anointed to have a special relationship with Jesus. Remember that he's cousins with John. They just were a few months apart in age. And remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and her cousin Elizabeth was pregnant with John, and one day Mary walked into the room where Elizabeth stood, pregnant Elizabeth, and John leaped in Elizabeth's womb, just being in the presence of Jesus inside of Mary. So there was this special kind of relationship and anointing that he had. So I wonder if John's heart was leaping right now with Jesus standing in front of him. I think it probably was. And as they stood together face to face, John realized Jesus was wholly different from these other people who were flocking to him for baptism. He knew Jesus had no need to repent. And here's something else we realize right there that John experienced that no one else caused him to experience. He was dealing with people's souls every day, all day, but when he was in the presence of Jesus, it caused him to look at his own soul. Uh, I don't know. You, I, you should baptize me. He's looking at his own condition and realizes the baptism of Jesus would be so superior to his own baptism. He knew if he baptized him, it, if he was baptized by Jesus, it would be an incredible thing. So why did Jesus want to be baptized? 
What did it mean he wanted to fulfill all righteousness? First of all, Jesus was aware that both he and John together had unique parts to play in the divine plan of man's redemption, and the present moment of baptism was important in getting that plan moving. So Jesus fulfilled righteousness at his baptism three ways. First, by identifying with sinners, probably the most important reason. If the Messiah was to provide righteousness for sinners, he had to be identified with sinners. The real meaning of the word baptize is to identify. So Jesus was going to do that. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, here's the word, the righteousness of God. Jesus wants to fulfill that righteousness. Secondly, he's accepting his destiny. He is dedicating himself to his holy vocation to redeem mankind. He knows it's a calling that's going to involve service and sacrifice. Look at Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And at his baptism, Jesus saying, I will do that for you. Thirdly, it's authenticating his identity from heaven. And now we're going to look at that. Let's look at his identity right now. We've got this beautiful painting. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, So I'm going to read about his baptism while you look at that. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You have to look to see the dove there. I hope you all see it. When it was time for Jesus to get to work, above the waters of the Jordan River, heaven opened up for him. As Jesus came up out of the water, heaven came down. The Trinity was involved at Jesus' baptism, anointing and affirming his calling. The Son was obeying. The Spirit was anointing. The Father was affirming. And prophecy was being fulfilled. Look at Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's the line of David, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, God's spirit came on people temporarily. Here they were going to witness um, that the spirit came and rested on Jesus It says in another passage we'll read, remained on Jesus. So it was saying the spirit is going to stay on Jesus. He is no ordinary prophet. He is the Messiah filled with the spirit of God. So those who watched this baptism also saw a visual of Christ's death and future resurrection a picture of that in his baptism. And we also know it's a picture of believers' baptism when we die to our sins and rise to new life in Christ. 
So as Jesus rose from the river, the world was introduced to its redeemer, and it was fitting then that God did the introduction. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. When we learn he's the beloved son of God, we can understand certain things. Jesus always existed with God. And Jesus has a loving and obedient relationship with God. He calls him his beloved son. Jesus was fulfilling a well-known messianic prophecy. The Jews would know it. Look at Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. You know, God's plans for Jesus were all about you rescuing you, rescuing me, rescuing everyone who's lost in sin. That's why he came. That's why he started his ministry here. Look at Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We often leave out John three sixteen and 17. So when you have doubts about God's love for you, remember he sent the son he loved for you to rescue you from your sins, to take you out of your dark domain, to live the abundant life he has planned for us. Okay, so what happened the days after Jesus was baptized? There's another powerful introduction. It's the one we've already talked about. Turn in John chapter 1, and let's go to verse 29. So we're back with John. We're back at the Jordan River. Once again, John is surrounded by those who are repenting and by those who are skeptical. And standing somewhere near the Jordan River, John looks out, and Jesus is now coming towards him. And he probably pointed him out to the crowd. He probably spoke loudly. He probably spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, John is a forerunner to Jesus. And so right now, his words go before Jesus even gets there. He's the forerunner. And he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For as many people to hear as were around him, and one remarkable sentence, John summarized the entire redemptive plan we read about throughout all of God's word. The Old Testament question is, where's the lamb? The New Testament answer is, behold the lamb. It all began with Abraham when he was told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Let's look at that verse in Genesis. Genesis 22, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, well, behold the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So certainly in Israel's history, there was no shortage of lambs to sacrifice. Lambs were sacrificed daily. Lambs were sacrificed at Passover where they atoned for the sins of the people, but it was never sufficient. There was no lamb that could be sacrificed only once to permanently cover sins. But God did provide the lamb, as Abraham said he would, with the son, Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. John pointed out Jesus to those nearby, calling in the Lamb of God. Okay, when he says Lamb of God, John is talking about a sacrificial animal and pointing at a man. Shocking. Confusing. Disturbing. And then John claims that only this one sacrifice would atone for the sins of Israel, not just Israel, but for the whole world. It's by faith in the identity and the sacrifice of Jesus we receive God's forgiveness. We are sinners We need a Savior if we want to have a relationship with our Creator. As our Lamb, Jesus bore the punishment God's justice demands. I saw a great hymn, and it said, Not silver, not gold has obtained my redemption. The guilt on my conscience was too heavy and had grown. The blood of the cross is my only foundation. The death of my Savior could only atone. I am redeemed, not with silver. I am bought, not with gold. I'm bought with the price, the blood of Jesus, the precious price of love untold. John's introduction of Jesus would have raised many other questions. How in the world do you know this man came from God? John has a simple answer. God told me. And it was true. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He in whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Seeing the Spirit descend on Jesus, John could testify about the deity of Jesus Christ. God told him, when you see the Spirit descend, Jesus' ministry will begin, and it's a ministry of baptism. And after Jesus' ascension, the baptism of Jesus would bring about an entirely new age, the church age, The church was born through one spirit. All believers would be baptized into one body. That is us in this room together. Only the Son of God could bring that about, 
and that is John's testimony. So we cast our eyes on the Spirit of God every time we look in a mirror. You have witnessed the reality of God's Spirit being alive in your very own life. You recognize you're not the person you once were. You also recognize I'm not the person I probably would have been. So like John, it's our job to be a witness, to point out who Jesus really is. We don't have to wear camel hair coats to do that, especially in Texas. But we do have to be like John. We have to hate evil. We have to hate the fact that there are people that live in it all day long and have never been introduced to the light of the world to get them out of that darkness, to Jesus Christ. You know, my husband Ted, he was 16 years old when a John the Baptist came to him in the hallway of his high school and wanted to point out Jesus to him. And the way he pointed it out was in the word of God that he kept in his pocket, walking around the high school. He asked Ted if he knew Jesus, and Ted said he did, but he was lying, and then he quickly ran away because it really disturbed him, that question. And that little introduction his friend could do in the halls of the high school began to grow and grow in his heart until he went back to that same person to get introduced to Jesus a little bit more. And, of course, one day he believed who Jesus really was. Let's be a John the Baptist in someone's life. Let's be bold and introduce people we know to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how good, how good you are. You had a plan. It was for us. Give us your strength, uh, your boldness, wisdom, and discernment to help bring people out of the darkness by introducing them to Jesus. We pray you put those people in our path and make it pretty obvious to us that we have that opportunity. I thank you for the women in this room that love you so much that would want to do that. We give you this night in Christ's name. Amen.